uh, I want to, uh, and I've said, I've told several people this already this week, they did not respond positively, um, which is a good thing. But we're going to take a break from our, our end game series uh, today and, and next Sunday to celebrate uh, Jesus in Easter. Um, and so we'll come back to it. Uh, I'm not done. I got a lot left. We'll come back to it following Easter. Um, and so we'll, don't, don't think it's over. Please don't. I'm, I'm having trouble keeping up with all the Facebook messages and emails already as it is. Uh, so we'll, we'll come back at the end of it, uh, at the end after Easter, but I'm excited. But several months ago, the Lord laid on my heart uh, the messages for this week. There's three messages that I'm going to preach in the next seven days. Um, the one today is called The Goodness in the Garden. The one I'm, I'm going to uh, speak on Wednesday night at the worship night, it'll be 15, 20-minute message um, leading into communion. It's called The Goodness in Gethsemane. Uh, and then next Sunday is called The Goodness on Golgotha. Uh, and if you don't know what Golgotha is, Golgotha is the name of the hill that our Savior was crucified on. Um, and as, as I've prepped for this and just prayed through this and, and studied through God's word, the Lord has just laid a heavy burden on my heart for us to truly have an accurate picture of God. I think that so often, uh, the vast majority of us, if not every single person, uh, even as Christians, we are unaware of the damage that sin has done to our mind, body, heart, and soul, and how much sin has caused us to paint an inaccurate picture of God. And, and there are many things in our life, as we'll actually see in the message this morning, there's many things in our life uh, that we see towards God that we struggle with God about, when in reality, it's not God, and it's not God's nature, God's character, but it's the sin in us that creates those emotions to begin with. And, and so there's, there's two things I believe the Lord is going to do in the hearts and the minds of our people uh, over the next seven days. And I, and I beg you, be here on Wednesday night. If you're part of our local family, be here on Wednesday night. It's going to be powerful. Um, it's just anytime we get together for a worship and just a focus on Jesus, especially around communion, the Spirit of God is just ever-present, and there's just powerful things that happen. So please be here on Wednesday. Um, but I, I believe through the course of these messages, I, th I think that, that God will uh, cause us to see him in a new light and bring to our remembrance or teach us for the first time some powerful things about his nature and character and his view of us and things he's done towards us that will cause us to worship him and be affectionate towards him in a way maybe we never have before in our lives. And I think ultimately, you know, the, the Bible gives two clear goals for preaching, for teaching the word of God. One is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The other one is to stir the affections of our hearts towards God. And that is, that's my hope and my prayer the most over the, over the next seven days is that through these three messages that our affections towards God would be stirred in a way that we would overflow and worship to him and, 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 and for him. And that, that's the hope over the next few days. I want to start this morning in the Garden of Eden. I want to start uh, at the beginning. And we'll be reading, starting with verse 7. 
uh, Genesis 3, verse 7. But I really, really, really want us to understand a few things that Genesis teaches us that I think that we just simply have forgotten or we don't think of in a way that we should. The first thing that I really need us to understand is that God created the world. God created the universe. God created every living creature in heaven on earth. God created the vastness of the oceans. God created the heights of the mountains. God created the things that we've discovered and all the things that we haven't discovered. And when God got to each phase of creation, at the end of it, he looked at it and he said that it was good. And you know, he even said that about you and me. He said that it was good. Now, I know that, that, that this, this might not hit us the way it probably should hit us, but I, re- I really want you to understand that the, the God who created us, our Father in heaven, when he created us, he looked at us and what he had created, and he said, it is good. It's good. It, it, in fact, good and, and, and our, our understanding would be an understatement. The way that we view the word good, it would be an understatement. In reality, it was perfect. It was uh, pure. It was holy. It was righteous. There was no sickness. There was no mental health issues. Uh, there was no death. There was no violence. There was no evil of any kind. There was no unrighteousness of any kind. There was no war. There was no pain. There was no death. There was nothing but love and joy and peace and paradise and perfection. And God created every single ounce of it, and it was all good. And, and, and out of everything that he, he gave us, and when I say us, I mean humanity, starting with Adam and Eve, God gave us everything, and, and everything that we would ever need in life, we had in God. They, 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 they walked in the presence of God on a daily basis. They, they met with God. They viewed him as Father, and he provided for them and took care of them and gave them contentment and peace and purpose in this life. And, and he withheld nothing from them. That wasn't good for them. The only thing that he withheld from them was this one tree called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, there's debate, and I'm not going to get into it. There's debate on whether or not this fruit was truly a philosophical uh, fruit that had some type of uh, genetic knowledge built into it, and as you ate it, you know, it opened up your eyes to the knowledge of good and evil, or if it was simply the act of disobeying God by eating the one tree that he said not to eat, that that act of disobedience opened up the heart and the mind to wretchedness and sinfulness, and we became in an instantly not just knowing sin, but enslaved by sin. And, and whether, whether the fruit was genetically altered to give knowledge or it was the act of disobedience, none of that really matters. The reality of it is that everything that God created was good, including us, and he only asked one thing of us, and that was not to eat from this specific tree, but she was, Eve was deceived uh, by the enemy, and, and uh, Adam was all, everybody gives Eve a hard time. Adam was just as deceived as, as Eve was or he wouldn't have eaten. <laughs> Got an amen out of that one. <laughs> And, and, and they both ate from it, and it says that their eyes were open. And so I, I want to spend 
just a few minutes, and I, I want to tell you what I want to do, and I just want to give a disclaimer, because some days I just get tired of fighting people on Facebook. I don't actually ever fight people on Facebook. I just laugh at their stupidity. This is what I do. But there's keyboard warriors, theologians, prophets of God, Elijah incarnates who exist in the world, and they have a belief that every pastor should be able to preach the entirety of the Bible, every single message. And if he doesn't, then he's a heretic, okay? So I, I wanna tell you what we're gonna do today. We're not gonna preach the whole Bible in one Sunday, okay? The truth is, each verse in this Bible is so thick and so deep, you couldn't preach the fullness of a single verse in 45 minutes, let alone a chapter of the whole Bible. That's how deep and how rich it is. And so I'm on, I, the Lord has laid us to focus on one thing this morning. We're gonna focus on that. Now that's truth. Now just because I don't say the things that are so important in your brain right now doesn't mean that I'm a heretic, okay? And don't, you don't have to defend me on Facebook. Don't ever defend me on Facebook. You just let people listen to two minutes of a sermon and then want me to die inside, okay? But I, I wanna do, I wanna give this disclaimer because there's a, there's a little bit of a Pharisee inside. But once, you get, once you're walking with Christ about four or five years, you start to develop uh, self-righteousness. And it's just, it comes natural. It's okay. We all get it. Um, but there's a reason why the only people that Jesus yelled at in the New Testament was the religious leaders. And so I just want to give all the religious minds and all the Pharisees just a disclaimer today that we are going to focus on one, the very first truth of God's response to the sinner. That's not God's only response to the sinner. It's not God's response to sin, but it's God's first response to the sinner. And in case you don't think that God's first response to the sinner was important, Jesus actually went out of his way to give three different parables in Luke 15 to teach this most dominant first response of God the Father to the sinner. So I just want to let everybody understand whether you're at a different church and you make a hobby of getting on our stuff at the end of every Sunday to listen to our stuff to then tell everybody in your church why we're all going to hell and we're not really Christians. This is a disclaimer. Can I get an amen? amen. Okay. All right. Just because today, because Today's gonna be one of, those, one of those messages where I'm gonna talk a lot about grace and God's love, and some people just hate that, okay? I'm just being honest with you. It's the most annoying thing on the planet, right? They forget that they were sinners and that they were lost, and they've been saved by grace, and now they wanna spend the rest of their saved life filled with the Holy Spirit condemning everybody else, okay? So I, I wanna just take a second, and I wanna tell you right now, I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, all right? And that gospel is truth and grace. And if you come with just truth, that's not the gospel. And if you come with just grace, that's not the gospel. It's truth and grace. And so I wanna look this morning and I want us as a church family to know God the Father's first response to the sinner. And I want us to see that in Genesis 3, starting with verse 7. I want to read this, and before we look at the response, I want us to see what sin does, some of the first things that happen when Adam and Eve become sinners. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed together fig leaves and made coverings for themselves. So the first thing I want you to know, and I don't want to be too awkward, but this might be one of the reasons I'm more mad at Adam and Eve than anybody, because they were just rolling around naked all the time. And God said it was good. 
And I think I can get an amen when all the guys, we can concur with that, <laughs> that it was good. But the thing that I really want you to understand is that they, they were one soul, one flesh, and they had a unity between them that no marriage currently has. They, they, they had a, 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 a love for one another, a comfortability, an intimacy with one another. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, when they became sinners and their eyes were open, the first thing that happened was there was a division between them. And, 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 and though they covered their bodies, they didn't cover their bodies because there was a physical issue or a physical thing. They were still just as hot. I imagine since there was no sickness and there was no negativity and there was no nothing bad, it was all perfect. I just imagine that they were two of the hottest people that ever lived. I just have to believe that. And it wasn't that that change or that shifted, but, but something broke inside of them to where they no longer felt connected to one another in that intimate way to where they were comfortable. They were no longer comfortable. They were now ashamed of themselves and they covered themselves. And the first thing that, that happened as, as sinners was there was division between the man and the woman. There was division between humanity. We see this not just between the man and the woman, but between Cain and Abel, that Cain killed his brother Abel. That, that the first thing that, that when humanity became sinners, there's something broke inside of us and there became a division in us. And that's why it's still to this day, even in life and even as Christians, it's so hard to find true intimacy in this life because that's what sin does. Sin destroys intimacy with each other. That's the first thing that, that sin did. It says in verse eight uh, that then the man and his wife heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the breeze of the day, and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? So I, I wanna, there, there's actually a lot that happens in these, this, these few verses. I really, you got to just understand the weight of this. You got you to understand what life was like before they became sinners. The, the, when I come home, this will change. I'm confident that it will change over time. Uh, as, as children who are beautiful and sweet and gentle turn about 13, they get possessed by demons. I remember I used to be one, and everything changes and shifts. Right, right, parents? But when I come home right now, my voice, when I come home, I say I'm home, or they hear my voice, they freak out. I mean, it's like a rock star has just walked in. It's the greatest part of my day. Edie Baby comes running up. She jumps up in my arms. They fight over me. Aubrey's like, Dad, look at this dance I learned today. And Hudson's like, I hit Eden with a broom. But I love you. And, and we just have this moment. Like my, my voice just, they, they just, they miss me all day and, 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 and I'm home and now they, they love me. That, that, that is the, the nature of, of the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. His voice prior to them becoming sinners was probably, not, not probably without doubt, the greatest thing that they had ever heard, that there was a sense of just 
um, uh, enthusiasm, excitement uh, over joy, just when, when the father came down into the garden and, and called out to them. I, you can just imagine just everything that I kind of just described with my children times a million. It was just, it, was in, it would be insanity. We can't even imagine how good it was yet. Yet now, as soon as they become sinners, when they heard the voice of God, the voice of God now created fear in their life. They were afraid. When they heard the voice of God at, from the time that God created the world all the way up to this, and we don't know how much time that was, but all the way up to this, the voice of God was the greatest thing that they could hear. And now there's fear in their life at the voice of God. This is one of the things I feel like people need to really understand is that there are a tremendous amount of people on different levels that have a very unhealthy fear of God. It's not because of God that you have an unhealthy fear. It's because of sin in your flesh that you have an unhealthy fear of God. God's character in this moment did not change. His nature did not change. Uh, who he was didn't change. His love for them didn't change. The overflowing peace and joy didn't change. Nothing about God changed. They changed. They became filled with sin. They became sinners, and now they have a fear of God. So the thing that I think that you really need to recognize what sin has done, sin causes you to fear the God you should go to help for. That's what sin does. And instead of coming to them as a father and coming to, to him as for help and coming to him and saying, we screwed up and we messed up, that was a deep-seated fear in them, and then they ran. And that's, that's the third thing that we see. The, the, they, they hid from the presence of God. They hid from the presence of God. Uh, I want to I read this. He, he gives this very, in verse 10, he gives a very detailed explanation. And Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden. He replied, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he says, who told you that you were naked? Asked the Lord God. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man answered, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate it, just like a man, blame the woman. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The servant deceived me, she replied, and I ate. He, he says, I heard your voice, and I was afraid, and so I ran, and I hid myself in the trees of the garden. He, he hid himself from the presence of God. Again, similar to the voice, the presence of God was the greatest thing in existence. But now, instead of wanting to be in the presence of God, they ran from the presence of God. This is what sin does. It causes us to run from the Father. And, and sin creates all kinds of reasons in your heart and in your mind why you need to fear God and why you need to run from his presence. He's a big, bad, judgmental God, and he's going to condemn you, and he's waiting to punish you, and he's waiting to strike you down. And I know a lot of religious people have helped develop those thoughts, but I need you to understand that every negative thought that you have of God is not because of God, but because of the sin in you. Sin is destroying your ability to get to the Father and recognize the Father and see the Father. He created the world and it was all good. He loved you enough to bring you into existence. He created everything and gave it to you. His voice and his presence was peace and love and joy. God did not change. It was the sin in them that changed them when they became sinners. And they hid from the presence of God. I, I, I want you to see the, the new normal if, if you, if from the time he begins to speak, from the time their eyes are opened to with Adam, between Adam and Eve, 
uh, to hearing the voice of God, to running and hiding from the presence of God. Every single thing had to do with shame and guilt. And this is what the life of a sinner, this is the new normal. Sin brings shame and guilt. That's all that exists in the life of a sinner, shame and guilt. And it creates a significant amount of other negative emotions that come from that. I think that we struggle to really understand the, the damage that sin does to us. But this is their new normal. They, they're, they're, they're uncomfortable in their own skin. They're ashamed of who they are. They're ashamed of themselves. They're ashamed of their body. They're ashamed of what they've done. They're blaming each other. They're divided from each other. The voice of God brings fear into their life. This is the life of a sinner. This is what happens when sin enters into the heart and the mind of humanity. And the last thing that happens, and this is, this is such a small thing, but such a massive thing. The world that God created, specifically the garden and the trees in the garden, this was paradise. And God gave them the gift of paradise. The trees of the garden, that they sustained them and they brought food and they brought purpose because they worked the land and they, they, they did stuff. And, and, and it, it, was, it was this beautiful, powerful, amazing paradise and this gift. Yet when they became sinners, what was a gift of paradise became their place of lostness. They hid themselves in the trees of the garden and they became lost and separated from God. That this is the world, that this is our life. This world, this life, this universe that God created and gave us that, that was originally intended for perfection and power and purpose and goodness and, 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 and the worship of God and all of these crazy, amazing things is sin in us. When we became sinners, this world and this life now becomes a place of lostness where, where we are without God and without goodness and without love and without the presence of God. That, that's what happens when we become sinners. That's the life of a sinner. That's what we see in the garden. And it's important, I think, that we have to establish the reality that they were sinners and that they were experiencing immediately, just scratching the surface, but they were experiencing immediately the consequences of being a sinner. And we have to really take that in and understand that before we can really understand the weight of God the Father's first response to them as sinners. And it's so simple, but it's so powerful if we can really take it in. God's response, God's first response to the sinner was to search for them was to look for them, was to find them. You know, I think sometimes we think that God punished them by removing them from the garden. That's because we don't read the Bible. What God said was, look at them and look at what they've done. They've become like us. If they eat from the tree of life, they'll live in this sinful state forever and they won't have any hope. We have to give them hope. We have to remove them from the garden, remove them from the tree of life. And from that point forward, after he banished them and he removed them for their own good, then he set down the purpose and the plan for Jesus to die for the sins of humanity. And I'll come to the massive hope that we have in death next Sunday because it's epic and you don't want to miss it.
But I, I want you to just for a second, and, and, and this is the meat of the message. In fact, you can go ahead and get up and leave if you want to. Don't do that. God's first response was that he searched for the sinner. He looked for the sinner until he found the sinner. And then the only time that he promised like punishment and death and destruction was not on Adam and Eve, the sinner, but on the serpent who led them into sin. And then he removed them from the garden for their own good. And then he prepared a way for Jesus Christ to come and save them from their sin. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, and, and if you are sitting there thinking this, it's because you've been a Christian for way too long and you've forgotten of the goodness of your salvation, the mercy, and the grace that God has given you. You've been saved so long that you stop being thankful every single day for the salvation that God's given you. Because I need you to understand the weight of what that is. And Jesus goes into Luke 15, and we're gonna go there in just a second, to teach the abundant power and the abundant goodness of God in the garden by looking for the sinner. When he looked and searched for Adam and Eve, he did not destroy them, though that's what they, they, they deserve. He was not angry. He was not hostile. He was not condemning. Why? Because he deeply loved them. He deeply loved them before they were sinners, and he loved them when they were sinners. And, and this is the part why I gave the disclaimer. This is the part why I gave the disclaimer. God loves every single person he has ever created, whether they give their life over to him or not. And that's what John 3, 16, the beauty of that. He loved the world so much that he sent Jesus into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world because the world was already condemned in their sin. What the Bible actually teaches is that God does not condemn you. You condemn yourself with your sins. You prove yourself guilty with your sins. You prove that sin is in your flesh by your actions of sin. You condemn yourself. God does not condemn you. God did not send Jesus to condemn you. God sent Jesus to save you. That's, that's the gospel, okay? Now, Pharisees forget that. Religious people forget that. And this was so important to Jesus that in Luke, Luke 15, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna read through this Quickly, in verse one, it says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to listen to Jesus. And obviously, the Pharisees and scribes begin to grumble because they, they couldn't stand this, that Jesus loved being around sinners and sinners loved being around Jesus. It says, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus, being Jesus, knows the things that they're thinking and saying. And then he just begins to tell three parables back to back to back. And they're all teaching the same exact thing. They're all teaching God's heart towards sinners. And they're, they're, they're not just reiterating, but Jesus is explaining to the Pharisees and explaining to sinners and explaining to me and explaining to you and explaining to history that God's first response to the sinner to search for them wasn't a fluke. This is God's first response forever to the sinner is to search for them. This is the parable that he gives, starting in verse three. He says, then Jesus told them this parable, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, comes home and calls together his friends and neighbors to tell them, rejoice with me for I have found my lost sheep. In the same way I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous ones who do not need to repent. The 99 righteous ones who do not repent, they go to hell forever. The sinner who repented is in heaven with the Father forever. There is no such thing as righteous apart from Christ and the righteousness of Jesus that's given to us in our salvation. But what Jesus says, and I want you to see the language here so that you can understand. This is why sad Christians and, and, and mad Christians make me so sad and mad. Because the father's response is, you, you're, he views you as a sheep that is lost and he loves you. And he's gonna look for you until he finds you. And then when he finds you, he's gonna put you on his shoulders and he's gonna take you back. He's gonna get all of his neighbors and they're gonna get together and they're gonna throw a party and they're going to rejoice and they're gonna, they're gonna celebrate the reality that you repented of your sins and that you came home. He, they're gonna celebrate the reality, not, not, not that you made yourself right, not that you put all the sin behind you, not that you became perfect, not that you prepared yourself to be accepted by God, not that you went to church every Sunday, not that you were religious, but they're going to celebrate the fact that you were a sinner and in all of your evil and in all of your wickedness, no, no work on your end. You just simply repented and admitted and acknowledged, I am a sinner and I'm in need of you, God, that he will celebrate that and pick you up and put you on his shoulders. You're still a sinner. Can I get an amen that, that when you get saved, sin's still there? Amen. Okay, that's why you gotta die. That message for next week. I keep putting in little fillers. Okay? That's why you got to die spiritually and physically. You're still a sinner. You still have sin in your life. You still struggle with sin. John even says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. So the fact that you're saying you have no sin is a sin. And so I want, I want you to see the heart of God. He picks you up and he celebrates. And he says, heaven celebrates. He goes on, he tells another parable. Or what woman has 10 silver coins and loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep her house, search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors to say, rejoice with me, for I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Why did Jesus, he's given the sheep and now he's given the coin. He's gonna give another one in just a minute. Why the different parables? Well, I think because the Pharisees, they're so stupid uh, that, that they might be able to, to wiggle themselves around the sheep in terms of like, well, the sheep's alive and the sheep's moving and the sheep came and the sheep was here and the sheep did this. But a coin's just an inanimate object that's just laying on the ground doing nothing. This is a big one. This is the truth and grace part. This is the one where I'm gonna get emails. Just watch the Facebook feeds this week. This is the one that's gonna get people, okay? The coin did nothing to find itself. The coin did not. The coin wasn't going, honor the bed. <laughs> the coin didn't even call out to God or the woman. The coin was lost. And every ounce of effort and energy and work was done by the woman. The woman lit the lamp. The woman swept the house. The woman carefully searched until the woman found it. And then she did all the work she did, did every ounce of it. She expended the energy. It was her idea. It was hers. what she was doing. And then when she found it, she celebrated the salvation of the coin. 
That's the gospel. You did nothing to earn your salvation, not even crying out to God. God has saved you. You are an inanimate object lost in this dark world, filled with sin. You are a sinner. You've been filled with the damage of sin, the weight of sin, and God went through all the effort of creating the world. God went through all the effort of turning on the light of Jesus Christ. God went through all the effort of sending Jesus to die on a cross for your sins. God went through all the effort of calling out your name. God went through all the effort of searching for you. You did nothing whatsoever to be saved, but then he saved you and then he celebrated you like you did something. That's the, that's the gospel. Now I know, I know, oh man, I, I can just feel it. <laughs> just tell me I did something. You did nothing. You did nothing. Jesus goes on to continue to reiterate this point by giving the parable of the, the we call it the lost son. It's really not the parable of the lost son, it's the parable of the good father, right? He says, then Jesus said there was a man who, and j- just in case you're still sitting there and your arms are crossed, and you're just like, I don't know if I feel like you. Jesus is about to teach you something. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to him, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. After a few days, the younger son got everything together and journeyed to a distant country where he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent all he had, a severe famine swept through the country and he began to be in need. So he went, hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his belly with pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him a thing. This right here, and I don't have time to teach line by line, but in in Jewish culture, which is the, the, the culture that Jesus is teaching to, he just hit the worst possible ways that you could live your life. This boy did it all. He spit in his father's face. To ask for the, the, the inheritance is I, basically, I hate you, dad, and I wanna live like you're already dead. I don't want you at all. I want you to die. I want the things so that I can go live my life the way I wanna live my life. And then he wasted it on prostitutes and partying and sins. He throws it all away. And then he sells himself as a slave into this other country and he gets so low that he's working with pigs. Again, this might not make sense in our culture because we love bacon, but in the Jewish culture, pigs were evil, unclean. You don't touch them. You don't look at them. You don't mess with them. They don't, they're not in your towns. They, don't, they serve no purpose. They, they were only in pagan territories. So for him to be working with the pigs and living with the pigs and be enslaved to another culture, another, a man who wasn't Jewish, this is all, every, every part of this story is, is, is the worst, the worst, the worst. And the heart of what Jesus is, is teaching us is that this is our life. This is all of our lives, whether we choose to admit it or not or see it or not, that this is what we, we've done to God. To be a sinner is to do exactly what Adam and Eve did. We just do it in our own way. We, we, God, thank you for life. Thank you for breath in my lungs. Thank you for time that I get to live. Thank you for the world. Thank you for everything. But I don't wanna live for you. I don't wanna live with you. I don't wanna acknowledge you. I just want your stuff. And then humanity, and and to be a sinner, is to waste everything that God created, everything that God did, and waste every second chasing and feeding our sinful desires. That 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 is our life. Now I know, I know that you you're gonna you're gonna come up with ten reasons why that's not me. You know I'm I'm kind of a good guy and I've been done this. Shut up. This is your life. 
You spend your life, as a sinner, apart from Christ, you spend your life feeding your sinful desires. And you spend your life trying to fill the void that sin created in your heart. And you spend your life trying to bring healing to your soul that was damaged by the sins of others and the sins uh, in your own life. That that is what life is apart from Christ. Just like the boy. You, you, you take everything that you have, everything that you can get, and you spend your time, your effort, and your energy feeding your sinful desires, trying to fill the void that sin's created in your heart, and trying to heal the damage that comes to your soul from sin. That that is life of a sinner. Nothing changed from the garden to right now. Jesus goes into just more detail. And then, and then, and if, and if you think that, you know, that there's some, you at least came to God, look at what Jesus is trying to tell you. You didn't come to God for any, any healthy reason or righteous reason. The boy didn't either. He said, I'm dying. I'm starving. My father's servants living better than me. At least if, if I go back, if I can just get back to my father's land and just become a servant, at least I'll be able to eat. It wasn't about loving the father. It wasn't about his, the recognition of anything. It wasn't about... He was an unholy reason why he was going back to begin with. Nothing's changed from the garden. We're still sinners and sin's still hurting us and damaging us and driving us. But the Father's response still hasn't changed either. In verse 17, it says, Finally, he came to his senses and he said, How many of my Father's hired servants have plenty of food? But here I am starving to death. I will get up and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still in the distance, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. The son declared, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father silently said, shut up, boy. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us feast. Let us celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Why is it so important that the word of God crush every ounce of Pharisee and religion in you as a Christian. Because if there is an ounce of you that thinks that you've found yourself, even an ounce, you will never worship God in the way that he's worthy to be worshiped. And you'll never appreciate the cross and the work of Jesus in a manner that's worthy of it. If there's one part of you that has convinced yourself over time that you actually did something that you actually participated in your salvation, that you actually found yourself, you presented yourself, that there was any, that that you, I I walked to the front of the church and I said the sinner prayers, at least give me that, show me that in the Bible, different conversation for a different day. Every ounce of energy to save you is on God. Every ounce of glory for your salvation and your eternity belongs to God. 
You did not find yourself. God found you because he searched for you, because he loved you. So there's, there's two people in this room right now. There's two people at home. The first is you're still out in the world. You're still apart from Christ. You are a sinner, but you are not saved. And I'm telling you right here and right now, every price that needed to be paid for your salvation, Jesus Christ paid it on the cross 2,000 years ago. And you don't think the Father's looking for you right here, right now? He just found you. This message was given to you. Right now, in this moment, you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. He's already saved you. It's the price is paid. It's done. Believe it. Believe it. And be saved this morning. The second of those who are saved, and you've just forgotten how much of a sinner you truly are. The only difference between you, sinner, and the sinner that's not saved is now you're saved. But that sin is still in your flesh. Your heart still leans that way, and you are still in need of grace every single day. And we should fall on our face in worship at the feet of Jesus Christ every single day if we fully understood the weight of the gospel and what Jesus did for us. You brought nothing to the table. You sinned. You let evil into your heart. You committed evil against God. That is the story of every single person in this room. You were sinners condemned by your sin, and our eternity is in separation apart from God in hell forever, except that God loved us so much that he sent his only son to die on a cross for our sins, and then he went beyond that to search for you and look for you until he found you. And like that sheep, when he found you, he put you on his shoulder and he began to celebrate. Like that coin, he threw a party and he began to celebrate. And like the son, he kissed you, he hugged you, he told you to shut up with all your self-righteousness, he covered you with a robe, he put a ring on your foot, on your hand, sandals on your feet, he killed a fattened calf and he celebrated. And I'm telling you right here and right now, no one is looking more forward to the celebration in heaven than God is. That's how much he loves you. And I think the Easter season gives us an opportunity if we have forgotten how much God loves us and if we have forgotten how much grace and how much loving kindness and how much goodness he's shown us and if we've forgotten how lost we were and if we begin to give ourselves credit for our salvation that we could come at the feet of Jesus together as a family and celebrate the work of Jesus on the cross and the reality that he saved us because he searched for us and he looked for us. That was God's first response to the sinner. That's still God's first response to the sinner. He loves you. He loves you. And we need to worship him because of that.